Tonight is part two of Living by the Book, Interpretation and Application. Last week we covered uh, the step one of observation, so we'll do a little bit of recapping. Um, but I'm going to pray, and we'll jump right into it. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're thankful uh, for this night. We're thankful for the opportunity to stop down in the middle of the week and to study. Um, particularly this week, as, as much as we look at the Word, we're also looking at how to look at the Word. And so I pray that you would continue to guide us, uh, encourage us, put our eyes where you want them, give us new tools to help us to be better students of your Word. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, we began our study of this book right here. It's called Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. It's the most wonderful book on how to study the Bible that I've come across in my 13 years here. Uh, I taught it in like year three or four to our youth, maybe earlier than that. And um, here a decade later, I'm getting to teach it again. And as I'm going through it, it's just incredibly rich. Um, we are approaching this study. You know, normally on Wednesday nights, we study uh, books of the Bible and do a survey study. But for this semester, we're doing something a little different. And then we're wanting to hit some foundational things and some things that are um, uh, things that we wouldn't hit if we were just going through the scriptures. And so we're just taking a little break and allowing other people to teach as well. So in that, uh, in the in that approach, I'm covering this whole book in two weeks. So what I want to let y'all know is that doesn't replace reading the book. This is a really, really good book. And I want to encourage y'all, there are so many, like I'm going to share a detail with you and this book will drill down on that detail for a couple chapters, and it's super, super helpful. So the approach on this study that we've talked about is it's sort of like showing up with an empty toolbox and having someone just fill it up with a bunch of new tools that you can go use when you study on your own. Now, the obvious difference is obviously no one's showing up with a completely empty toolbox, and I'm the sage on the stage that's going to show you th something that you've never seen before. A lot of these things you may know. But the idea is being equipped with tools so that you can really increase your time and study uh, on your own when you're studying the Word. So according to last week's study, why should we study the Bible? According to last week's study, why should we study the Bible? Growth? What else? essential for a few things that we covered. You can feel free to look at your notes and cheat. Spiritual maturity, growth, spiritual maturity. What else? Effectiveness. Anything else? According to last week's study, how should we study the Bible? What do we need? Do, do what? You could have been right. I, I really didn't hear you. You let it go, and you're like, no, that didn't feel right. <laughs> what? Thoughtfully. Thoughtfully, yeah. A strategy, a method. Yeah, the big picture is when we study the Bible, we need some sort of a method. And a method helps us to sort of have an approach that, is, that keeps us on task and, and is a legitimate way to study really any piece of Scripture that we're studying. So... Observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, interpretation, application. That is the three-word summary of this big book. Observation, interpretation, application. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it or read about 
this much of the book because that's observation. We spend more of our time in observation than the other ones. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, but observation should be like, uh, if you put a number on it, maybe at least 80% of your time because too often what do we do when we study the, the Word? Do what? We skim? What else? We sit down in our Bible study, we read the verse, and then what? How does this apply to me? We jump so quickly to the application point that we don't actually look at all the details that God chooses to share in his breathed out word, and we don't um, consider context, we don't consider a number of things, we don't consider even the proper interpretation. We just read it and say, okay, what does this mean for me? Before we ever ask the question, what does it mean? So we have to spend more time on observation than anything else. And we spent our time last week looking at observation. This week our focus is on interpretation and application. Remember, the more time you spend in observation, the clearer the interpretation and application will be. The less time you spend in observation, the more time you'll have to spend in interpretation and application, and it'll be less clear. So think about like a, a seesaw or a teeter-totter, you know, the... The more time you spend here, the less over here. Well, if you don't spend enough time on observation, it becomes imbalanced, and really your interpretation won't be as good, and your application certainly won't be as good. So put that first slide up. In interpretation, we're asking the question, what does it mean? So what were we asking in observation? What are we asking when we observe? Yeah, what do I see? What does it say? And in, in interpretation, we're asking, what does it mean? So the short, we're going we're gonna to do little snapshots of each of these, and then we're going to dig into each of them a little deeper for the rest of our time. And if you want, you can take notes, but you could also you know, hold up your phone and take a picture of the screen. That's cheating, but it's easy. And you'll have it with you forever, unless your phone dies, like mine did four times this week. What does it mean? Number one is questions. You can never ask enough questions of the text. I've had, I, over the years, I've heard people kind of talk about Scripture almost as if, like, it's disrespectful to ask questions of it. Like, if you read something and you say, that doesn't make any sense to me, that's okay. And if you read something, you're like, you know what, I have some questions for that. That's okay. God invites you to ask questions of the Scriptures, to, in fact, bombard it with questions, because you can really never ask too many. So when you're in, in the process of interpretation, when you've observed everything that's there, you've looked at all the details, all the observations that you can make, and you come to this point of interpretation, and you're trying to say, what does it mean? You ask as many questions as you possibly can of the text. But don't just settle for questions. This is also the part where we're looking for answers. Um, and Less time in one results in more time in the other as you're looking for these answers. So the answers are going to be a lot harder to find when you're in the process of interpretation if you spend less time in observation. And then the third thing in this is integration. When you're <clears throat> trying to figure out what it means, you are looking for the meaningful whole rather than just a bunch of collected facts. Sometimes we'll sit and study the Bible <clears throat> and we'll mess up and think that the goal is just knowledge, or the goal is just more facts, or just more Bible information. And the goal isn't just more information. And so as we're entering into this step of what does it mean, what, did I, what I just studied, what does that mean? We need to look for the meaningful big picture 
rather than just all the little facts that in fact make up the big picture. Each, each fact that you collect, you need to kind of think of it as sort of a puzzle. So an illustration would be, you know, you're, you're starting to put that puzzle together in this step. Does everyone have this, these things written or taken a picture of? The next uh, is application. So th these are little snapshots, and we're going to dig deeper into each of them. In application, we're asking, how does it work? This is important because the question is always, how does it work, not does it work? A lot of times we'll <clears throat> read something in Scripture, and it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that'll work. I, don't, I see what it says, but if I do that, I'm not sure it's going to play out the way that I want it to play out. <clears throat> While it's true that it may not play out the way you want it to play out, the reality is <clears throat> whatever God is calling you to works. So we can ask the question, how? How does this work? And so the first is, how does it work for me? And the second is, how does it work for others? And that's an important balance because we're not supposed to just hoard information. We're supposed to bathe in the Word, spend time in the Word, be changed by the Word, and ideally then we are ambassadors for Christ who speak on His behalf to others. So we don't always hide, we don't hide, ever hide really what we know, but we, we aim to share it. So the, you want to avoid what, what we'll call like the credibility gap. If you try to explain what it means to someone else, what like if I got up here and taught something, and said, so for you, this means this and this, and it could mean this for you, but I never really spent any time on what it might mean for me. There's a credibility gap that, that, that goes there. So when you study the scriptures, it's important that you spend time asking, how does this work for me? How can I apply this in my life? How can my behaviors, attitudes, thought patterns change because of what I just engaged? And then you go to, how does this work for others? Think in terms of, how can this transform other people's marriages? How can this transform the way they approach their business? How can this inform their time as a family? So now let's look more closely at interpretation. <clears throat> Turn to Psalm 119, 34. Last week, we looked at a psalm that says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. And what we saw was that that is the psalmist praying to God for the ability to observe scriptures well. He was praying for the ability to be better in observation. In Psalm 119.34, it says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So here we see the psalmist, that last week we saw praying for observation, here the psalmist is praying for interpretation. Give me understanding. I want to know what this means. Hendricks says, acting on what God has said assumes that you understand what he has said. Acting on what God has said assumes you understand what he says. So you can't actually have a right response behaviorally morally or spiritually to what God has said if you don't understand what it says. We can't expect someone to apply something if they don't know what it means. And so here the psalmist is asking for the ability to know what it means. Turn over to Acts 8. Here's a, an example of this. Acts chapter 8. And we're going to flip around to a handful of different scriptures tonight. There's um, Wednesday nights are a fitting place to hop around if we have to. 
In Acts chapter 8, we're going to read 26 through 35. We're talking about interpretation and wondering what does it mean when we come to a piece of scripture. Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, who's Philip? Do y'all know who Philip is? Yeah, he's the he's known as Philip the something. The evangelist. Yeah. So who could we compare him to that's really popular evangelist? Billy Graham. That 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 was the answer I was going for. So this is like if Billy Graham heard from God, or an angel of the Lord said to Billy Graham, rise and go someplace. And what Philip does is he does exactly what the angel of the Lord says. He is an evangelist. He is the one who proclaims truth of God, truth of gospel to as many people as he can. He is all about seeking out lost people who do not know the gospel to share it with them. And here, he has an opportunity to do that with one particular person. Rise and go down toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So desert places aren't the place that you would naturally think an evangelist would be. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you're doing observation and you're looking, you're like, okay, this guy is high in the Ethiopian court. He, he is trusted by the Ethiopian queen. Um, he is a eunuch. Uh, he somehow is sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. We have no idea how he got his hands on Isaiah or what, went, what came about to make this happen, but we know that God did something pretty extraordinary before Philip ever got there to prepare his heart for this encounter. And so he's sitting there in his chariot. You can imagine someone sitting in their car reading the word, and he's reading Isaiah, this Ethiopian eunuch. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love that. He didn't just saunter over. He didn't take his time. He didn't question God. He ran to him, reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? That tells us a lot about Philip the evangelist's perspective on the scriptures. That tell, what does it tell us? What does he think about the scriptures? It's what's important. That you understand them. Yeah, so he runs over. The first thing, I mean, imagine someone's in their car reading the scriptures and, do you understand what you're reading? An angel told me to come here. He doesn't he didn't spill the beans on that, but you know, I would imagine that added to his uh, urgency. So he ran and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? So he's in this spot where he's reading the scriptures. He knows he doesn't understand exactly what he's reading. He knows he needs someone to guide him. And look at what God does and places someone right there to guide him into understanding. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so, be open, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this is about? Him or about someone else? So he already has the question, like, is this about the prophet Isaiah or is this about someone else? He doesn't know about Jesus yet. And the response, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Howard Hendricks says, mark it well. This man had a copy of the scriptures, but he didn't understand it. And he needed to understand it. This man had a copy of the scriptures, but he needed help in understanding them. He was deeply involved in the process of interpretation when Philip showed up. He was deeply involved in this process, this, this important step of interpretation when Philip showed up. Philip helped the man gain insight into what the text meant. And so if you kind of pan out, in a very real sense, interpretation helped open Africa to the gospel. That's what we're seeing here. In a very real sense, this important step of interpretation, not just having something to read, but being able to gain understanding into what you're reading was an important step into the gospel being brought to Africa. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16, what does it say? All scripture is what? Profitable. Breathed out by God and profitable. What does it mean to be profitable? What's another way of saying profitable? If we know that God is telling us through, Tim, through the message to Timothy, if if we understand that he's saying all scriptures breathe that by God and profitable, what, what, what's he trying to communicate to us? What's another way to say profitable? Beneficial, okay? To, to your gain, what, what else? Worthwhile. worthwhile. And, and what makes it beneficial to your gain and worthwhile? There, there's an outcome? It's transforming? God breathed. What I want us to see in that is it has purpose. It has meaning. You don't have to make that up. It's so important to remember that when we're studying scripture. Sometimes, I mean, there's been occasions where I'm preparing to preach and I'm looking at something and usually it's if we've like assigned different things for preaching and you go and look at it and you're like, oh man, how can I make this awesome? This is breathed out by God. And there's still this ridiculous tendency when you don't get it the first time to be like, oh, how am I going to preach this and people aren't going to fall asleep? It's breathed out by God. It has purpose. It has meaning. It might take some digging. Remember last week we talked over and over about how Scripture does not yield its fruit to the lazy. It takes work. But here we see if it, if it is, if all Scripture is profitable, that means that it has purpose. It has meaning. God isn't playing some weird game of hide and seek. God is very interested in being understood. It was that way with the Ethiopian eunuch. That's why God sent an angel to have Philip go talk to him. Because he didn't want the Ethiopian eunuch to remain in the dark. To feel like, well, I'm trying to learn about God, but God won't reveal himself to me. That's not how it plays out here. God wants to be known. God is revealing himself to us through his word. 
and it has purpose and it has meaning. For too many people, the meaning of the text is not in the text, but in their response to the text. You may have experienced this at some point in your life where you don't necessarily see the meaning of the text in the text first, but in how you react to it, how you feel about it, how you think about it. And when we do that, meaning becomes very subjective. Hendricks says, meaning is not our subjective thoughts read into the text, but God's objective thoughts read out of the text. That's a really important quote. I'm going to read it again. Meaning is not our subjective thoughts read into the text. It's God's objective thoughts read out of the text. And all that means to kind of sum that up is that when we study Scripture, our goal is to think God's thoughts after Him. It's His breathed out word. So rather than trying to say, what are my thoughts on this? Rather than pontificating, there was a whole group in the book of Acts that um, all they did was sit around all the time and talk about new things. They loved hearing their own voices. They loved just pontificating on things. And um, God here is saying, no, no, that's not really how it works. Your, your goal should be to think my thoughts after me. I, I was helping my daughter do a book report last night. And it was trying to figure out what the author meant in the book. And it was a piece of symbolism that I think was really obvious. And my daughter wasn't getting it. It was about this tiger being in a cage, and he needs to let the tiger out of the cage. And the tiger was clearly representative and symbolic of the emotions of the main character. So I'm like asking all of these leading questions. Ella, what is, what is the tiger? Why is the tiger there? Because it needs to be let out of the cage. Well, what does that have to do with the state that this main character's in? He's the guy who's got to do it. I'm like, okay. Um, why did the author put the tiger in the story? So he could let it out of the cage. I'm like, come on. And so it was funny because I was like, you have to think the author's thoughts after them. That's the only way you're going to write a decent book report that doesn't look ridiculous. And then I may have gone off about the tiger and the emotions and the cage and all. And, and then she was like, he opened the door to the tiger of his emotions. And I was like, yes, we're getting somewhere. She was like so proud that she like, she grabbed it, she put it together. But the point was, Ellie, you, you have to think about what the author's saying. Why did the author put the tiger there? Why did the author put the struggle there? Why did the author put the emotions there? It's the same thing when we study the scriptures. Think God's thoughts after him. Don't just try to impose whatever your own thoughts are, because if we're just subjective and we don't see it in an objective manner, guys, our, I mean, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but our culture, our thought patterns, our mindsets, our language details are so different than when most of this was written that it's not okay to just play fast and loose with it. You have to do some work to say, what does this say before you say, what does it say to you? So it's important to think God's objective thoughts from the word. So that said, when it comes to interpretation, does scripture have many different interpretations? Does Scripture have many different interpretations? Huh? Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good answer. So it's possible to read scripture when you're eight years old and read the same scripture when you're 38 years old and get something different out of it, get more out of it. Does that mean that there are different interpretations of that same scripture? No. Technically, no. It can feel that way. But Bill, why do you say no? Yes. And if there's many different ways to look at truth, you know, yeah. uh, then, I mean, it, it, it kind of, then how do you really know what God wants? How do you know what he's yeah. saying? The only thing that I can think of where it might be, say there's more than one interpretation, is in some of the prophets, uh-huh. where they're prophesying maybe about an, an event that's soon to happen, uh-huh. uh, but there's also overtones of maybe the end times also yeah. Yeah, where soon doesn't mean soon the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the reason for that is that if I look at it and I say, well, this is truth, and, and you say, well, this is truth, and, and you say, well, this is truth, and you say, well, this is truth, then you end up really watering down whatever the truth actually is. And so if we see this as breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteous, that we can be equipped for the good work that he's called us to, we have to be more specific than that. Now, does that mean that there can be different beliefs within the same faith? Does that mean that I can look at a piece of scripture and even differ from another Christian man on what that scripture says? Yes, but we're going to talk about what that actually is here in a minute. What I want us to see here is it doesn't have a bunch of different interpretations. We can't all, it would be a worthless endeavor and exercise for me to read a piece of scripture and say, well, I think it means this. Does anyone else think anything different? And then we just kind of go around the room and everybody says what they think and then we all feel good. We'd be like the, the, the people in, in scripture that just sit around talking about new things all the time that wouldn't be worthwhile because we didn't get to the heart of what God was thinking as, other, as the author of the word. So <clears throat> there are a lot of barriers that can potentially block our understanding. When we're talking about observation, interpretation, application, we want understanding from the text. I want to get it. If I'm digging into the word, it's not just to put a check in my devotional box. I want to get it. And so quickly, we're going to go through a couple of barriers to our understanding but we're going to focus in on, on one of them in particular. So those barriers on that next slide. Huh. Next one. Yeah, that one. Language barriers, cultural barriers, literary barriers, communication barriers, and faulty interpretation. Those are all barriers that you can... Um, that you can find yourself troubled by as you're studying scripture. Our language is different than the Greek and Hebrew that scripture was originally written in. Our culture is different. I mean, Jake and Steph could probably tell you a lot about engaging these barriers firsthand in different cultures. It's imagine our culture versus the culture in which these things were originally written. Literary barriers, communication barriers, I was reading about someone who was reading the story of Ruth, 
And he was like, oh, that's a little bit, that's a little bit uh, edgy and almost a little saucy, I think is the word that he used. And it was like, that actually says more about him than the text. <laughs> because that's, in the text, it's one of the most pure, beautiful pictures. But culturally, we see this gal that needs a dude, and oh man, look what happened, gleaning in the field. And so um, it's, uh, th- there's a lot of barriers that we can look at and we find, and, and, and I, when, the more I study, the more I, I find those barriers. The more observation I do on Scripture, the more I find those things where I'll have a word or I'll leave something out, and, I, and I'll think I know what it means because of the English, interpreta- the English translation that I'm reading, um, and then I'll dig deeper and I'll realize that word actually means something much deeper than the word I have in front of me in English. And there's, there are, are um, like simplicity is biblically the, the, the word simplicity has profound, deep meaning, but sometimes it's just translated as generous in our, in our text. So it's like if you dig deeper and you look at what that original language was and you look at the word and you look at the implication of the word, that, that's one of many, many language barriers that you can have. So the reason I want you all to have these as a tool in your toolbox is to know that if something's not adding up when you're trying to figure out what something means, potentially you're, you're engaging one of these barriers. And you need to take a, a look at that and try to dig a little deeper and get to the, the, the heart of the matter there. That last one is faulty interpretation. So Scripture has one interpretation, and if we get it wrong, that means we have faulty interpretation. And so there's that next slide. Here's some potential ha- hazards of faulty interpretation. And I think we've all seen this. Uh, I think maybe at least all of us at some point have, have been guilty of faulty interpretation. But here are some things to look for and to be careful with when we're trying to figure out what does this mean. And the first one is just simply misreading the text. Um, this, remember, we talked about the, the key to good observation is you have to learn how to read good, right? We talked about that last week. And so you have to be able to read, and, and part of um, doing that well is that you can't misread. That, does, that, does that just blow your mind? That, that's a really deep thing. It's to read well, you can't misread. That's what I just said. Um, it, it seems obvious. But it's easy to just leave things out, uh, to, to, to say something the wrong way. There have been a number of times where I've shared Philippians, and I'm like, let your request be made known to God. I want people to know that God cares about the details of your life and loves you so much that he allows you to share them, even though he already knows them. He's so merciful, and I want people to know that. So a lot of times I'll quote, let, the, let your request be made known to God. But the next part is, with thanksgiving. So you're not allowed to just go and complain to God. You have to go to God and give thanks for the many blessings that you have. And on the things that are still troubling you, you can let those requests made known. Leaving that part out is a problem, and it could be a misreading of the text. Or just, you know, um, ignoring something important. John 14, 6. Does anyone know what that says off, off the top of your mind? Huh? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, misreading of the text would be, I am a way. I mean, if you say, I am a way, as opposed to the way, that really wildly changes that piece of scripture. That's not something that I've seen people do a lot, but it is something that happens. First Timothy 6.10, here's another one. This is one that 
I've seen a lot of people mess this one up. I've read in books. They weren't good books, but they were books. Y'all know that, right? There's a lot of books out there that aren't very good. 610. Money is the root of all evil. Is that, is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's different. So if someone takes that and misreads it, you can end up with a pretty different conclusion about money if it's the root of all evil. I think I had that on a plaque in my house somewhere growing up. Money's the root of all evil. It's like, well, we don't want any of that then, right? No, the love of money. It's more about your heart. It's more about the way you are towards it, the way you view it. Are you idolizing it? It's, it's, it's a completely different thing, but we've heard the love of money is, is the root of all evil. Or love of money, or money is the root of all evil, or love of money is the root of all evil, as opposed to the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So um, that is an example of misreading the text. Another example is distorting the text. Look at 2 Peter 3.16. Distorting the text. 2 Peter 3.16 says this. Let's just start in just 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, the letters that Paul's written, that are hard to understand. Now, that should just be an encouragement to some of us that, Paul, that Peter is like, man, Paul wrote some stuff that's hard to understand. Because if you see things that Paul wrote and you're like, man, that's hard to understand, Peter felt the same way. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So this is one of the examples of where what Paul has written, the pastoral epistles, the letters to the churches... Um, what Paul has written is, is, has, is referred to as scriptures, but there are some ignorant and unstable who are twisting these scriptures, and they do so to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Distorting the text is not something that's new. Distorting the text is not... If someone distorts the text, it's, our best response isn't, oh, I can't believe anyone would do that. The text itself says people will do that. But it says those people are ignorant and unstable. Don't be ignorant and unstable. When you read something that you don't agree with in Scripture or that is hard to understand in Scripture, keep, keep digging. Don't just try to make it say something... That you, that's easier for you to comprehend or easier for you to apply because that is done by the ignorant and the unstable. So we can't misread the text. We can't distort the text. Contradicting the text. There are, there are statements. Just, um, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Is, 
Well, first of all, it's not a Bible verse. If you were thinking that was a Bible verse, it's not. But, but there's one sense in which that can be true, but it's not completely true as it stands on its own. And so, in fact, on its own, it can really contradict some things because we can't help ourselves and hope that in doing that, then God will reach out to us and give us mercy and grace. We need the mercy and grace of God to be able to do anything well in our lives and to do anything faithfully. And so contradicting the text is something that happened in Genesis 3. We don't have to go there um, because I think most of us are fairly familiar with you know, the fact that Satan used God's words and twisted him. And in fact, he said, God didn't say that. When in fact he did, that's called contradicting the text. Subjectivism is, um, is imposing your own thoughts on the scripture rather than allowing God's thoughts to be brought to you by the scriptures. And then relativism is something that um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is um, whatever we're doing must be the way, the best way to do it because it's how we're doing it now. And our culture has, we're so chronological snobbish uh, in so many different areas. And relativism is something that takes scriptures and says, <laughs> oh, we're going to use an ancient law of a bunch of ignorant people that aren't as progressed as we are. To, to, to try to live life now, well, that's, that's ridiculous, and that's relativism. They try to minimize the breathed-out Word of God by acting as if it may not be as important now, unless they come across a piece of Scripture that supports their narrative. And then they'll bulldog that piece of Scripture and be like, see, it says this, it says this, it says this. And, um, I mean, I've had, in the last year, I've seen, I've read articles that try to, try to convince me that, um, that God's you know, best plan was socialism. And it's like, well, okay, zoom out a little bit. There's a difference between giving things away voluntarily and being owned by the government. And so, like, you can't, and one thing leads to a, bad, a worse thing, but, but that takes it. It just kind of makes it relative, and, 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 and they're subjective in their thoughts towards it. The sixth thing is overconfidence. Have, you ever, have any of y'all had, like, like, a really good Bible study in a particular book? And when you were done, you were like, that's my book. If anyone's got any questions about this, I'll answer it. I felt that way about Romans 12 for a long time because I was going through Romans when I was going through this living by the book, and Romans 12 is like this huge therefore that like, oh, here's all these 11 chapters where God's done, and boom, this is how it affects your life. And it was a, it was a meaningful time in my life, probably the most um, transformative, just, I just... That was a time where a lot of stuff made sense to me that didn't make sense before, and it helped me to understand my calling in life, helped me understand my role as a friend, as a husband, as a, as a dad, and, and man, I just, I just, I loved it. I just kept digging into it and studying. I read every commentator that has ever written on Romans, and just, especially that chapter, and I just kept digging into it. But the problem is, when you set yourself up as the ultimate authority of any text, you have crossed a line that you should never cross. And the funny thing is, those first two verses of Romans 12, I can open my Bible today and still see things in it that I hadn't seen before. None of us are an authority on a particular text. So overconfidence in your interpretation is a potential hazard because interpretation never ends. Like, no matter how deep you dig, it goes deeper. Like, if you think, I've plumbed the depths of this passage. No, you haven't. There's more there. Mainly because you're not God, and you couldn't breathe it out if you wanted to. 
So overconfidence is a problem because interpretation never ends. We can continue to glean things from the scriptures. Now, getting back to the different beliefs in the same faith, Romans 14 talks about Gentiles. Oh, man. All right. Romans 14 talks about Gentiles and Jews sitting at the same dinner table. And some of them say this food is dirty according to the law, and some of them say idols aren't even real, eat the steak. That, that is a very summarized version of the text. And so the issue is, for, for the Gentiles to move in faith, they can't, they're not affected by the law details that the Jews have. But for the Jews to move in faith, they've got this law that is their heritage, and that's all that they've ever known. So for the Jew to be the most faithful in that moment, they should partake, or they should um, do what they feel is best according to the law, and not... Um, not step on their brother in doing it, and then the Gentiles should do the same thing, but in the opposite way. So for them, they had the same faith at the same dinner table, but different beliefs. Now that is a very quick way to explain a very complex chapter of Scripture. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.15. So there's different beliefs in the same faith. It says, be fully convinced as to what you believe in Romans 14, but it also says... uh, be fully convinced as to what you believe. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. The Jew couldn't eat it in faith, so it would have been a sin for him to eat it. The Gentile couldn't not eat it in faith, so it would have been a sin for them to pass it up and just let the Jews affect their beliefs. So faith is important here. And so in 2 Timothy, does someone have that? 2 Timothy 2.15? Go ahead and read it out loud if you have it. So what does that tell us about how we should handle the word? I'll read it. She doesn't have ESV. Oh, when it comes to interpretation, you have to have the ESV or else you're going to end up in a, (laughs) I think it's almost exactly, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. At the very least, there's an implication here that you can wrongly handle the word of truth. Differences in interpretation are fine, as long as we keep in mind that the conflict is not in the text. So if you say, I have a different interpretation of that scripture than you do, okay. But what we both need to agree on is that it's not because the text is wrong, or the text is muddy, or the text is unclear. It's our limited understanding. We hear what we find in these two texts, Romans 14 and 2 Timothy 2.15, is it seems from both passages that we're to be fully convinced as to what we believe. God doesn't want you to be wishy-washy. Like, if someone tells you something, you're like, yes, I'm 100% for that. And someone tells you something different, and you're like, yes, I'm 100% for that. You're wishy-washy. You don't have a firm foundation that you're standing on. You are supposed to be fully convinced as to what you believe. But we would also see here, fully convinced, faithfully and responsibly handling the truth, but also teachable. Part of the reason that we put a high standard on teachability is the fact that we don't get this as much as it can be gotten. We, we don't think God's thoughts perfectly after him, no matter how hard we try. So there's a certain amount of humility that's very important in the, as we handle the word. There's a way to handle it wrong, a way to handle it right. 
We're going to go through a couple lists here fairly quick in the last five, ten minutes. Five keys to interpretation. Five keys to interpretation on the next slide. Content, context, comparison, culture, and consultation. And it's really good to do these in that same order. Content is what you gain during observation. You're asking questions, you're asking questions, you're getting answers, you're looking, you're looking, and then as you're interpreting, you're, the key to it is to understand all the content. Don't leave anything, on the, uh, anything out. The next is context. When you're studying a piece of scripture, you always have to ask what comes before it and what comes after it. And then you can start asking questions about how does that affect where I'm at in my life before or after now. Um, Every major cult is built on the violation of the principle of context. Every major cult is built on the violation of the principle of context. People start cults by taking something and pulling it out of context and applying it where it best suits their own narrative. Um, in context, there's an example on the Sea of Galilee, you know, when the, when the fishermen were terrified because the storm was so bad. When you study the, the context there, and you're like, well, okay, where's the Sea of Galilee? And, you know, it's, you know the, the whole, this whole thing takes place on the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of fishermen who fish there all the time. What, what can I find out about that? When you go and look at it, you, what you find out is that it's surrounded with the, the level of the water. It's surrounded by a bunch of cliffs, and there's downdrifts of wind in, with, the, with the topography. And so with these downdrifts of wind, the Sea of Galilee is known to have really terrible storms. Well, these fishermen who were terrified and crying out to God fish the Sea of Galilee all the time. So for this storm to freak out those fishermen, it would have to be way worse than just a normal storm. Like, so that helps you, remember, part of the observation is import your senses into the, into the text. What does it look like? What would it sound like? What would it smell like? What would it taste like? What would other people be doing in that setting? If we understand the Sea of Galilee and the topography and the cliffs and the wind, we know that those fishermen were used to really bad storms. So if this storm scared them, it must have been really bad. And if it's that bad, what is God trying to teach them in the midst of it as the one who can calm it? It, it gives greater meaning to the passage when we understand the context. Comparison. When we talk about comparison, compare Scripture to Scripture. Compare it to itself. It proves itself. So if you find something you're like, I'm not sure if that sounds right, Compare it to other things, other areas. Do word searches and look up, okay, I think this is what this means, Well, let me go look over here and see if it proves itself. Culture. Climbing in and understanding the culture is important, and it's really hard for us. Um, um, but it's worth the effort. Um, a great example of this is Da Vinci's Last Supper, the painting of Da Vinci's Last Supper that he made. Does anyone know what century he made that painting? 15th. You were close. It was close. Um, my guess was 16th, too. I had to look it up. It's the only reason I know it's 15th. Um, and when did Jesus have the supper? Yeah. Yeah. First century, right? That whole, I'll know Domini, year of our Lord, AD. So, um, 
Yeah, so the painting shows them at a table in a line with a 15th century fresco on the, in the background on the wall. It's not a good place to go to understand the setting and the culture of that meal. They didn't have chairs at tables at the supper. They would recline on one and eat with the other. And where they were talking and certain people couldn't hear anything, it's because you could lean back and talk. But at that, it's like... Uh, like a posed picture as if Jesus was like, all right, guys, on three, you know, and it's just not a good representation. Um, and then finally, consultation. That's the last step in interpretation, consultation. That's where you go to, um, to, to commentaries, to your Bible dictionaries, to other resources to go figure out what, pe- what other people have observed in this text. We, if you really want to become a good student of the Word, stop jumping so quickly to what other people think about it. Think your own thoughts about it. Think God's thoughts, and then compare that to yours, and then go and see what other people have written. Finally, is application. Um, if you spend the proper amount of time in observation interpretation, application just kind of slides into place. If our eyes are wide open and our hearts are tuned to God's word, what we do with it will happen far more easily than if we just jump to that step first. That's why I'm not worried about spending just a couple minutes on it here at the end. Application is the most neglected part of the work of studying the Word, but it's also the most needed stage in the process. How does it work is the question we're answering. The final goal is not simply understanding the text, but applying the text. The goal is to not be just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. We substitute a number of things for application. I could spend a whole night on this, but what I want us to see is that sometimes we substitute interpretation for application, but when you read like Matthew 13 and him saying there will be many who, who say, I, I've healed people in your name and said, Lord, Lord. And he's like, I don't know you. That doesn't mean that he actually doesn't know them because he's God. It means that there was no personal relationship. And so when it comes to application, what he's saying here is stop calling me Lord or start doing what I tell you. He has an expectation. The knowledge that we gain comes with the expectation of obedience. Or you could say that the knowledge that we gain as we observe and interpret comes with um, responsibility. James 4.17 says, Anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. So knowledge without obedience is is sin. Um, There's four steps in the application process um, that I just want to look at real quick, that next slide, or the... Two slides. Four steps. Next one. Know, relate, meditate, and practice. Know the text and know yourself. First Timothy 4.16 says, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. It's always more fun to pay attention to the teaching. It's always more difficult to pay attention to your own life. You have to know the text and you have to know yourself. Those are very important in, in application relate. Jesus Christ wants to renew every area of your life. So growth is a long-term dynamic process. No matter how far along you are, there are still areas that you need to relate these scriptures to. No matter how well you're doing, there's still something that you can relate it to. Third is meditate. In Joshua 1, 8 through 9, you see him saying, I will, I will meditate on your law. I will never let it leave me. And it's about this thing about strength and power. And what we find is that there's really no success, no strength, and no courage without meditation and obedience. This is highly neglected. Some of us feel like we're losing our minds and like crazy sometimes 
because we're not taking the proper time to just sit with the word, to just meditate over it. We're not talking Eastern meditation where you empty your mind. We're talking Christian meditation where you fill it and you think about it. What does it mean? What is, what, what is God saying here? And then practice. I can't stress this enough. The ultimate goal of Bible study is to practice truth. The ultimate goal of studying the word, observation, interpretation, application, is, is, is applying it, is to be a doer of the word. It trains athletes. It equips soldiers. That's the language that's used in Scripture. Run to win. Fight to win. So seek out the areas of your life where you can practice the truth that God has revealed to you. Um, <clears throat> there's a cookie monster outside the wall there. Um, there's nine quick questions. I'll put this up there, and I'll just leave it there. So if you all want to write it, you can. Um, applicational questions. Some people say applicational is a word, and some don't. I'll just let that be your interpretation. Um, these are great questions if, when you're getting to the application part. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse that I should memorize here? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? Wonderful, wonderful questions when you're trying to figure out what the application is. Um, when it comes to studying the Bible seriously, there has to be a decision to change. I'll close with this quote from Hendricks. He says, God gives us his word, not to make us comfortable, but to conform us to the character of Christ. And that goes way beyond pious feelings and good intentions. It penetrates to the level of our schedules and our checkbooks and our friendships and our jobs and our families because if our faith makes no practical difference there, then what difference does it make? Clearly defined objectives help us see the truth as action and not abstractions. So when it comes to studying the word seriously, you have to have a plan. You have to have follow through. There's something that I've shared from this book um, written by David Allen, Getting Things Done. It's what we do as a staff. If we have something that we see that we're supposed to do, what we say is, okay, what's the desired objective? When it comes to Bible study, you have to say, what's the desired objective? If you're sitting down for a new devotional, what's the desired objective here? And then to make sure you don't get bogged down, the question you always ask is, what's the next action step? What's the next thing I need to do to reach the desired objective? If you're like, like this applies anywhere. Like you could be a, a construction person, a nurse, an engineer, uh, whatever. If you're bogged down in something, just say, what is my desired outcome? What is the next action step I can get there? If you're having marriage problems, what is my desired outcome? What is the next action step to get there? If you're having issues in your parenting, what is the next? What is the desired outcome? What's the next action step? Next action step to get there, and that is what we're ultimately trying to do when we're studying the Word. We want to know what does God want me to do here, and so when it comes to studying the Word seriously, <clears throat> it's a lot like you know working out, eating well, finances. You can't say it's a priority if it's not on your schedule and there's no plan. That's a, a simple way to close this study. Studying the Bible seriously should be a priority for us. But if we don't have a plan to actually sit down, study it, and take the necessary time to work through it, we can't say it's actually a priority, much like other things in our lives. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had his heart, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's a good example for us to follow. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight um, in learning how to study the Word more effectively. I do pray that we would be better students of your Word. I pray that we would take these tools and not just leave them written in our journals, but actually, actually use them. 
I pray that the things we've engaged in the last two weeks in, in the way of observation, interpretation, and application would be things that, um, that genuinely change our lives so that we understand our God more. And not just so that we understand you, but so that we obey you and live lives of worship the way you've designed us to live them. Lord, I, this method that we've talked about has made such a difference in my own life personally. And as I've gone through this this last two weeks, I've been reminded of a number of things that I really need to work on. And so I pray that any conviction that anyone has would, would not just fall away as we end the study, but that it would continue and that we would be good students of the word, cherishing it for what it is and aiming to honor you as we respond to it in obedience. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.